Anyway, where, where are we? We live in a time when meekness is seen as weakness and weakness is frowned upon. Where showmanship matters more than substance, where self-promotion uh, is glorified far more than humility, where success is valued more than maturity and wisdom, and yet it's into this world that Christ sends you and I out as influences. Christ, uh, Christ sends us out into community to be light and to bring change. And these final chapters of 2 Corinthians, we've been preaching through the book of 2 Corinthians in the Bible this year. These final chapters, chapters 10 to 13, there's still two more weeks of this uh, mini-series as we look at sphere of influence. They, they give us a window into how the Bible speaks about um, Christian leadership and Christian life and Christian ministry. They give us a window into how we should think about ourselves, how we should think about others as well. They, they, they show us, if you will, the marks of Christian leadership, which is why we called this mini-series, these final chapters of 2 Corinthians, Sphere of Influence. Every single one of us here today has got a sphere of influence. It could be in your marketplace, it could be in your family, it could be in your neighborhood, it could be at your life-saving club, wherever it is, you have got a sphere of influence. And I want to speak to that and to look at, well, what are the kinds of people that Christ wants to see influencing and being light in these various spheres? Last week, did, uh, Darlington did such a phenomenal job. I think he's in the second meeting, so otherwise I'll, I'll, and I'll congratulate him there. But Darlington did the most incredible job preaching. If you missed his message, please log on, download it, catch it on YouTube. But, he, but he, he began to kick us off on the subject of weakness and how we understand that within Christianity as well. If you're not a follower of Christ, maybe you're here today and someone kind of dragged you along and you're wondering, what is this Christianity all about? I want to stop saying this. Jesus was the most extraordinary leader that the planet has ever seen. Yet he was a peasant carpenter from Nazareth whose teaching and life literally transformed the world. He modeled selflessness. He modeled service of others. And today, today we see the kind of Christ followers that this kind of selfless love and teaching produce and unleash into the world as we look at the Apostle Paul in this text. Now, I know that not all church, church leadership has got this right throughout history. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not trying to say that uh, we, we, we just nail this as a church all the time. However, I'm saying that Christ calls us to this, guys. Common Ground South Penn, this is what Jesus is calling us to. This is what Christian ministry and maturity looks like as we look at this text today. So turn with me in your Bibles, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Today we're going we're gonna to look at verse 1 to 13. As you make your way there, but let me hone in on the key verse this morning. The big idea today is weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. Weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. It's quite a mouthful, uh, admittedly. Weakness is the way. It's on the front page of every magazine. You know, when you're standing at Checkers or wherever it is that you buy your groceries, you look at all those magazines there. Not a lot of men's health covers with weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. It's, not, it's just not how we live. It's not, it's, not, it's not what our culture loves to glorify. We want the vision of the good life. Yes, six pack and, uh, and a holiday home and whatever, 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 whatever it is, you know. And yet Paul, the big idea today, weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. Our key verse today, verse 9 and 10 in the heart of that 
that text is. But he said to me, Paul writing, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am, con- I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, there I am strong. Weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. Let's pray and then let's get into this text. Lord Jesus, we come before you now and we just, we want to realize that there's a line today that's being drawn between the way our culture lives, values, and, and views maturity and the way you lived, valued, and lived in maturity. And we want to recognize that for us as Christ followers, looking at this, there's a pull both ways. And we want to ask, Lord Jesus, that you would draw us toward a vision of Christian maturity that looks like you, Jesus. That you would almost um, remove those parts that don't belong in our hearts. You would, you would cause a vision of this kind of maturity to be more compelling than the many pictures we have in our culture. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, if you're new to this passage, if you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the book of 2 Corinthians, a little bit of context here. What's happening is Paul had planted a church in a city called Corinth, much like south, the South Peninsula. And uh, then he had left and gone on with his ministry journey. And when he had left, a group of super apostles, in Paul's hypothetical words, probably their own words, the super apostles had moved into town. And they rolled into town with pomp and parade. And they came preaching a vision of the good life. And in the name of Jesus, they began leading people away from Christ and away from the gospel. And they began discrediting Paul and boasting about themselves. Look how amazing we are. Look how poor and weak Paul is. You should follow us. You should get rid of Paul. And this is the context here. They claimed a spiritual authority based on some uh, different things. One of the things they claimed a spiritual kind of maturity and authority on the basis of was the incredible visions and revelations and encounters with God. That, that they had had. They they'd had this extraordinary encounter with God and they told all the people about it and they said, if you follow us, you could also have encounters with God like we do. These experiences of ecstasy with God, visions of God in prayer, they became the basis for claiming uh, an authority in the corporate body uh, and, and saying to them, come follow us and you can experience things like too. And the church began to think, wow, I'd like to experience God like this too. I'd like to have visions and revelations like this. Maybe we should give these super apostles authority. So Paul, who's never really spoken about his visions and encounters of revelations with Christ outside of when he came to faith, is now kind of on the back foot. What's he going to do? These guys are claiming all these amazing things. The church is saying, wow, we want these amazing things. Let's get rid of Paul and go to these guys. Now, what does Paul do who's kind of left on the outside? Paul, what he has to do is he has to condescend, if you will. He has to do what to him seems unchristlike and starts to boast, in a sense, about his visions and revelations so as to match these guys. And then from standing alongside them to say, but we really don't want to do this and let's reject this whole concept of boasting. And so that's what he has to do. 
If he doesn't match his enemies, it's quite likely the church will be swept away in followership of these super apostles. So we read from verse one to verse six together. I must go on boasting, Paul says. Man, I don't want to. I don't believe in this thing, but I've got to do this. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. It's as if the super apostles have set the agenda for what Paul has to boast in to match them. Now I've got to go on to visions and revelations in the Lord. Paul says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And when he heard these things that cannot be told, which man may not utter, and on behalf of this man, I will boast. But on behalf, uh, sorry, but on my own behalf, I will not boast, except in my weaknesses. Though if I should boast, so though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. A big idea today is weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. And the first point I wanna make from this chunk of scripture here is ecstatic encounters don't equal comparative maturity. It's quite a mouthful. I get it. I, I, I'd be, I'm tempted to, to, to say, re repeat after me so we can all remember it. Ecstatic encounters don't equal comparative maturity. I'm trying to capture the meaning of Paul. Ecstatic encounters don't equal comparative maturity. Let's unpack what's going on here. Paul's enemies have set the agenda for his boasting. They've come into town. Look at my amazing visions. Look at my amazing revelations. They've been claiming these ecstatic, incredible encounters with God, encounters with God in the heavenly realms. Here's the thing, though. What they've done is they've shared these experiences in a way that makes them look more amazing than everybody else. It's a comparative maturity here. They've boasted about these experiences to others and they've derived a spiritual authority in the church because of the awesomeness of their experiences with God. It's why that word comparative comes in. It's, there's no problem with the encounter itself. The problem comes in when you start to share it in such a way as you start to rank and create distance and derive authority over others because look how amazing I am. Look at the encounter that I've had with God. And they began ranking themselves as mature and better than other Christians. And so Paul's response has to match them. And he has to boast about his visions and revelations. And he shares an experience about a man. Look at what Paul does. Who's the man who's had this experience? It's Paul. And Paul, he tells the story in the third person. He says, I know a man. Why has he told the story in the third person? It's as, if, it's as if he's trying to create distance from himself. He's weary of the church now starting to give to him authority on the basis of his visions. And so he speaks at distance uh, from, from this man who's had this vision, although he's speaking about himself. It's interesting to note that Paul shares an experience that took place 14 years ago. It's an experience that obviously dramatically impacted his life and it happened long before the church in Corinth was ever planted. Yet in all the time that he spent with them, he'd never bothered to mention it. it. Happened 14 years before, but he never brought it up. Reading between the lines, it's as if Paul is saying, look, I've had more incredible visionary experiences and encounter with God than all of these fakes. 
and I've never even told you about them. I never even thought to, to boast about them to you because I didn't need them to boost my profile and bring authority with you. Because Christian, and, Christian authority and Christian maturity has got nothing to do with my personal experiences with Jesus and my encounters with him in terms of visions and revelations. For Paul, there's no correlation between authority and these personal visions and revelations that people have. Uh, Paul, Paul continues here and he speaks in this vision. It's very mysterious. He speaks of, I was taken up to the third heaven. And then he says things that man shouldn't speak about. There's so much mystery here. Paul gives nothing away about this vision. I mean, if he was trying to, to come across as more awesome than everybody, he would have given this extraordinary uh, detail to the vision and revelation. But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't do so because it wasn't for everyone else. It was simply for Paul. That was between Jesus and Paul. Why is this important? The bottom line is visions and revelations, encounters with God as beautiful and as wonderful as they are. And they are beautiful and they are wonderful. And you could see by the way in which Paul speaks about this, this is profoundly important to his life. But they are, they're in the realm of personal relationship to Jesus, not corporate um, comparative authority deriving. They don't equal corporate maturity. They equal personal closeness for Paul. This was private. It was for his own edification and intimacy with Jesus, which is why Paul speaks of himself, I know a man, not an apostle. It's not my role in leadership that's caused me to have this extraordinary vision, nor has this vision empowered my leadership. No, it's just me as a man. It's just me as a son of God, as a Christ follower. And it's a beautiful part of my faith and life with him. Does that make sense? Okay, how does this apply to our lives? Well, this is super important because in some ways, this is a lot of what we see in Christian subculture online and all over YouTube and all sorts of things where there are different kind of people or organizations that go around claiming amazing encounters with God and then using those encounters in such a way, creating an awe around them so as to think, well, follow me. Let me become an influencer in your life. If you, if you do this, then, then you, you know, if you follow me, then you will be able to. And Paul is saying here, that's not what they're for. These amazing revelations, visions that, and this was, an, this was an incredible moment Paul had with Christ that he never spoke about. That was between him and Christ and it was profoundly impactful to him, but it wasn't a way of garnering authority. It wasn't a way of, of um, commending my personal maturity to other people. For the most part, I, I want to say, actually, I think our church is actually really, really healthy here. I have seen this go funky at a previous time in my life in a previous city, in a church that I wasn't a part of, where a small pocket of Christians formed a little group and they started kind of, kind of sharing their visions and their experiences. Nothing wrong with that. However, it began to get toxic when they themselves begin to think of themselves as more mature than the rest of the church. They were the kind of deep Christians and the rest of the church were the kind of shallow Christians who didn't know that depth of relationship with Jesus. And this toxic comparativeness began to creep into uh, the church to the point where it actually undermined the, their ability to follow the leaders. And a lot of those guys actually found themselves isolated and walked away from church. I, 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 I haven't seen anything like that in our church, church not even close. Um, but, but, but we're preaching through this text and I think we need to be mindful of these things. 
So let's start to look at, well, what is the basis of authority? What does Paul really seem to value? Ecstatic encounters don't equal comparative maturity. Paul continues, so to keep me from becoming conceited, verse 7 to verse 10. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Okay, I've had this extraordinary encounter of revelation with God. So connected to that vision and revelation of God. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. My second point today, as we look at this text, is dependence on Christ is the key to spiritual power. Dependence on Christ is the key to spiritual power. Paul shows us the result of these incredible revelations. What's the result of this incredible revelation and experience he's had with God? A thorn in the flesh. Hey, I'll take that. No. The word so and because connect these things. These two things go together. You, you, this one happens, therefore this one happens. That's how Paul sees this. There's a connection to the wonder of the amazing encounter he's had with God and the thorn of the flesh. Now the thorn is not the best translation of this word. The Greek word here literally means this. Anything with a sharp point that produces pain. It could just as easily have been translated stake. My, my nervousness is that when we think thorn, we think shame he's got a splinter in his finger. Oh, he's running his hand along some wood and he's got himself a thorn or something like that. Oh, get some tweezers and take it out. Th this Greek word here, literally anything with a sharp point that produces pain could go stake like one used for impaling someone here. This was serious. This was a big deal. What exactly was his thorn? Generations of believers have speculated. Some have said, uh, because the word flesh, it must have been physical, like migraines or earache or malaria. I'm quoting commentaries. Migraines, earache, malaria, epilepsy, or some or other chronic debilitating disease. Others said, no, 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 it wasn't physical, it was psychological. Depression or anxiety. Others said, it was the constant persecution that Paul faced. These, just to name a few, David Garland said, he believed Paul didn't have to explain what the thorn was because anybody who knew him would have known exactly what it was because they would have seen it in his life. It was that big, it was that substantial. In the end, we simply do not know what it was. Perhaps it's the grace of God to us that maybe when you experience a thorn in the flesh or a stake in the side, that you think to yourself, maybe, maybe this is what was Paul's struggle. And, and you can relate to him. Stakes, let me go slowly here. Stakes in the flesh, thorns in the flesh are not good. Neither do they only bring bad into our lives though. Well, this was, this, that came from the hand of Satan. Yet it didn't only bring bad into his life. This stake was a constant reminder to Paul of the need for God's grace in his life. It brought him to Christ in a place of dependency, 
constantly. Paul pleaded for it to be taken away three times. Lord, please take this thing away from me. And yet God didn't, and he used it for good. This thing that Paul wanted gone, that came from the hand of Satan. God left, God used still for good in his life. His prayers for deliverance were not answered in the way that Paul wanted. Rather, God answered his prayers in another way, by empowering him with sustaining grace to endure and using it to, walk on, on, to work on Paul's character, keeping him humble and dependent on God. Verse nine explains to us that this thorn did not get in the way of what God Paul, called Paul to do. Paul was weak, but weakness is not a hindrance to Jesus. Weakness is not a hindrance to Jesus. It's an opportunity to depend on him for power in your life. Just, I know that seems obvious, but it's so hard actually when you try and reconcile that with how we, are, we, how we discipled in our culture to live. Weakness is not a hindrance for Jesus. It's an opportunity for his power. Grace, it, it brings about a dependency on Christ for grace, not just grace for salvation and for the forgiveness of sins, but grace also means God's sustaining power in our lives. That, that the way in which God creates us, Andrew, Andrew Wilson in his book, um, Incomparable, so beautifully gives this illustration. God is our creator and he's our sustainer. God makes us, but God doesn't make human beings in the way that a builder builds a house. A builder builds a house by constructing it, and then it's got everything it needs to stand, and then he walks away and he goes and builds another one, right? Wilson says, no, no, God creates us and sustains us far more like a musician who's blowing on a clarinet creates a song. The moment the, moment the artist starts, stops blowing, the song ceases, but, but the song is dependent constantly on, on the creator of it to hold it and to sustain it in an ongoing way. And this is what Paul is saying. No, no, God didn't make me and leave me and now I get on with it. No, no, God sustains me like someone blowing into a clarinet sustains a note. He sustains me in my weakness. His grace is sufficient for me there. Though I am weak there, he is strong for me. His grace sustains me there. Because of the thorn in the flesh, Paul is unable ever to think I'm self-sufficient. I've got what it takes. I don't need anybody else. I'm the great apostle Paul. No, no, no. He, he, he knows all the time, I don't have what it takes. I need you, God, your grace to sustain my life. And that was the context that Paul did ministry in. It's worth pointing out here, though, that there's no power in weakness itself. There's no power in weakness itself, but the weakness brings us into reliance and dependence on God. And that's where the power comes. Paul seems to value gospel power over personal comfort. Gospel power greater than personal comfort. So often in our lives, I think the illusion of control means that we don't depend on God the way we should. I say illusion of control because whenever you think you're in control, it's just an illusion. But that illusion can be powerful so as to delude us to thinking we don't need him to be blowing his note, sustaining our lives. And I think we miss out on the power of God and the grace of God that Paul so deeply valued in his life. The final part of this text, let's read verse 11 to verse 13. 
I have been a fool. He doesn't want to boast about himself. He doesn't want to brag about these things. But I have been a fool, and you forced me to do it, for I ought to have been commended by you. You guys should have been commending me rather than making me defend myself to you, for I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works, for in what for in what, so let me read this correct. For in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? I didn't draw any income from you. I was supported by other churches when I was ministering to you. That's the only thing that I did. Forgive me for this wrong, is what he's saying. Third point, true maturity in ministry is thinking less of yourself. True maturity in ministry. Hey, let's translate that into life. Christian maturity Christian leadership is thinking less of yourself, even though I am nothing. Paul again draws a distinction between himself, the boasting. He doesn't want to do this, but he has to do this. And so he's saying it's foolish, but I'm doing this as a fool because I will become a fool if it helps me to win you. Remember Darlington explained that so beautifully last week. But, but, and this is, this is not true of a, a Christ-like apostle, but I've got to do this thing. He, he front-ends that as well. Um, but, but I love the way Paul balances out the thorn of the fresh part in the middle with what he says here. Lest we think that maturity is all defeatist and I have no faith and everybody should just have thorns and experience no victory in their lives. Paul says this, he says, um, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. Uh, Christianity is not just um, thorns in the flesh. It's not as if God never heals and God never does anything miraculous. Christianity is not all just dependent suffering. Paul reminds us of the other side of this tension too, that when I was with you, signs and wonders and mighty works were done by God. And so, so, so you've got to remember the church were witnesses to this as well. So just helpful to balance this out. The church saw these signs and wonders. And so Paul says, you should have been commending me to these super apostles rather than writing me off for this. But Paul had a different sort of set of values than these external leaders. The pseudo-apostles, they valued lofty and clever speech. They valued self-promotion. They valued incredible visions and revelations and experiences with God. And prosperity church salaries were a big deal to them as well, all of which Paul cared very, very, very little about. I want to land us by just on this point here, but let me just sum up before we do so far what we've said. I didn't tell you, but the message title today is Weakness is the Way. The big idea is weakness is the way to maturity and power through dependency on Christ. How are you doing at dependency on Christ? How are you doing at dependency on Christ in your life? Perhaps you've, have you been duped by the illusion of control? Are you in a place where you, this thorn in the flesh, I don't know what your struggle is. Is it, is it bringing you to your knees in reliance on Christ for power in the midst of your life? Ecstatic encounters don't equal comparative maturity. Guys, we wanna be the kind of people who encounter Christ, have amazing visions and experience with him. Amen, yes. But then don't equate that to, well, I'm better than everybody else. You should all come and follow me. 
And don't allow that to creep into your heart. Because Paul says these amazing encounters with God, they can lead to conceit in our hearts. How are you doing there? Have you become conceited? Is there a sense of, of when, when, you, when something's going well with Christ, is there a comparative maturity that grows in you? Dependence on Christ is the key to spiritual power. Lastly, True maturity in ministry is thinking less of yourself. I can't get past that phrase, though I am nothing. This was one of the most influential human beings who has ever walked on the planet. His theology, the way in which he articulated Romans and Ephesians and Corinthians, he wrote, he wrote more books, about half the New Testament was written by this man. And yet he says to, he says to us, he says, though I am nothing. In the world of front page magazine, I am the greatest. Look at me. Celebrate my goal. Da, 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 da. That's the world you and I live in. Paul says, I am nothing. My life is poured out in love and in service of others. If you want a vision of Christian leadership and maturity, it's not in success. Look how amazing I am. I'm a unicorn among horses. It's in I lay down my life. Hey man, I'm willing to be a donkey to carry the weight to love and serve others. We get a window into the lack of ego alive in Paul. Yet simultaneously, he's extraordinarily used by God. He thought nothing of himself. In contrast to these pseudo apostles who were so amazing at everything going on, look how extraordinary we are. Paul says, I am nothing. Paul had mastered the art of subordinating his own ego. Perhaps that is one of the hardest things to do in our world today. It's why Claire's word to us today, so good, the fear of man, how we, we love to be loved by man. Sometimes the fear of man can be, be loved, loved, being loved by and accepted by other people. Yet Paul, even if I have to become a fool, I'm willing to do that in order to love and to serve the church. He emptied himself. He poured out his life in love and in service of others. Where did Paul learn this? Where did Paul learn this? Well, I'll tell you in a second, if a few of you wouldn't mind um, sharing the elements of bread and grape juice among us as a body. Thanks, Baptist. Thanks, Tracy. Thanks, Keegs. Thank you, Annabelle. Thank you, Andy. Where is it that Paul learned this? I mean, such an extraordinary man with so many churches planted, incredible gospel deeds, and he blew open so much of the world. Where did he learn the selfless, pour out his life in love and service kind of life? It wasn't like it was popular in his culture. Humility wasn't a big deal at the time of Christ or Paul. Paul learned this from Christ is where Paul learned this. Paul learned this from Christ.
Has everybody got? Mikey, have you got? Has it got to you at the back yet? Not yet. I'd love to read to us as we go to the table. Maybe we can stand together. I want to read to you from Philippians 2. It's this kind of selflessness, this subordination of ego. In a world that would say to you, the greatest pursuit of your life is personal happiness. And the way that would get adopted into Christian culture would be live a life where you can be as comfortable as you, like, as, as you can be, no thorns in the flesh, and yet still have amazing encounters with God. And, and Christianity can become a means to, wow, extraordinary encounters with Jesus, amazing visions and revelations, and no thorns in the flesh. And yet Paul models to us, whatever it takes, if, if I need a thorn to keep me humble, bring it on, Jesus. I want to depend and rely on you. I need your power. I want to lay my life down in love and in service of others. This is a vision of Christian leadership. It's life poured out in love and service of others. It's not promotion. It's not success. It's not self-glory. It's not just strength. It's gospel. It's, it's gospel seeped into all the cracks and crevices and many deficits of all of our lives, but grace being applied there. And in the context of that, life coming to us. Where did Paul learn this? Philippians 2 verse 3 through 10 says, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Do not look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, yet he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you, Jesus, that you did not count equality with God something to be clung to. But you gave it up. You condescended. You became a human being. You poured out your life in love and in service, ultimately into death on a cross in order that we could receive life, in order that we who are broken and weak and sinful, every one of us could experience your saving and sustaining grace. That Jesus, we know ultimately that this meal points to a feast. This meal foreshadows the ultimate feast where we will be united with you. We will be whole. We will be without weakness. We will be without sin. 
But this meal, this small cup and this small piece of bread point to you sustaining our lives in grace now. So Jesus, as I eat of this bread, as I drink of this grape juice, I remember your life poured out for me. I ask, Lord, would you come and fill me again afresh? Sustain me, Jesus. Fill me with your power made perfect in my weakness. I thank you that I don't have to be strong or altogether to come to you. I come to you as I am, and you fill me with power in your grace, Jesus. Can you take a second as you eat of the bread and you drink of the grape juice? Would you? Just take a second to pray that prayer personally to him. Hey, maybe you're not yet a Christ follower, but you've heard something, uh, something out of this world into this world of self, selfishness. And you thought, that's what I want for my life. And then these elements celebrate the life and death of Jesus for you, and you receive them and take them into yourself. Take a second and pray some personal prayers to Christ. Jesus, I bring you my sphere of influence. Will you do that? Jesus, here's my sphere of influence. Forgive me when my life and leadership has looked more like these pseudo-apostles, more like my culture of progress and self-promotion and glory and less like humble, servant-hearted love and service of others, Jesus. Husbands, fathers, mothers, wives, friends, young adults, senior citizens. Lord, would you be glorified through our lives as we lay them down? Maturity and not in self-exaltation, but in love and service of others, Jesus. Who's God called you to love and serve? Who's God called you to love and serve? Not because you're strong. Not because you've got it together. What does it look like to ask him for grace in your life, to sustain you and to empower you to love and serve?